Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Now open Monday through Saturday until 2, offering a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going to be talking about invisible disabilities on the program today. A new documentary has been made about uh, disabilities which at first glance may not be readily apparent. The film is Invisible Disabilities, The Problems of Perception. One mother of an invisibly disabled uh, adult child uh, says, uh, talks about the uh, gap between uh, when he is seen as normal and when he is seen as not normal. And that gap can produce problems of safety. And so there's a panel discussion uh, on Thursday evening at 7 o'clock at the Salt Lake City Library, 7 o'clock in the evening following a screening of Invisible Disabilities, which includes uh, Salt Lake uh, Police Chief Chris Burbank. We'll talk about how to keep uh, these people, uh, which include the people with the intellectual impairments and autism, safe. We'll also talk about how to integrate uh, people into society, how to uh, stretch them, Also included in the film and in the panel discussion is internationally renowned animal behavior expert and nationally known autism expert Temple Grandin, author of Thinking in Pictures. Uh, William McMahon, chief uh, of the uh, University of Utah Department of uh, Psychiatry. Jenny McKenzie, the uh, director of the film, will be uh, with us later in the program. And the moderator of that panel discussion is Betsy Burton with the King's English Bookshop, whose son, Nick Burton, is uh, one of the men profiled in this documentary. We're going to hear next the trailer to the documentary. This will bring up some of the uh, issues to be talked about. Well, I think because he wasn't my first child, I sort of knew right away. I just was worried. It was one of those situations you never forget. Basically, he was diagnosed as profoundly brain damaged. He'd had an interuterine stroke and it had taken out the right side of his brain. What do we do? The only thing that we did know at that point in time was that we were going to take care of this young man. You know, there's a really wide range of disabilities. Most children with intellectual impairments really are not visibly apparent in any way. When you first see him, you don't know. And it is that gap, that instant between when he's seen as normal and when he's seen as not normal. Nix was involved in a frightening situation not very long ago that could have resulted in a real tragedy simply because an officer didn't recognize his disability. The notion of protecting everybody equally, and that has been a challenge for law enforcement throughout our history. There's a real need for training so they can differentiate between a bad guy's gonna grab their gun and shoot them from somebody having an epileptic seizure or someone on the autism spectrum is having a meltdown because they're in sensory overload. If professionals don't understand or if they misjudge, that's when real harm can come to these kids. All people need to do useful work. I mean, people want to contribute. Integrating people with disabilities into the community, having them go to the movies, go out to eat, working jobs, all it does is enhance everybody's experience. That diversity is what makes us interesting. One of the things you gotta do is you gotta stretch people. Because if you don't stretch them, 
they don't develop. I think one of the major problems is the inability to conceive what people with these invisible disabilities have to contribute to society. They are examples of what can be done if people are willing to work, cooperate, and recognize their humanity. That's the trailer to the new documentary film, Invisible Disabilities, the Problems of Perception. We're talking about uh, people with disabilities uh, who may not, uh, whose disabilities may not be readily apparent, uh, including intellectual impairments and autism. There's a screening of this uh, film Thursday at the Salt Lake City Library at 7 o'clock, including a panel discussion following the screening of the film. Later in the program, we're going to be talking with the moderator of that panel discussion, Betsy Burton from King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City, whose son, Nick Burton, is one of the men profiled in the documentary. We'll also be talking with the uh, filmmaker, Jenny McKenzie. Right now, we uh, turn to Temple Grandin. You've probably heard of an internationally known animal behavior expert, professor of animal sciences at Colorado State University, nationally known autism expert, and in fact suffers from a form of autism herself and has, of course, overcome that to go on to great success. As I mentioned, coming up, a further discussion of this, and we'll open the phone lines. Right now, my recent discussion on invisible disabilities with Temple Grandin. On this part of the program, we're talking with Temple Grandin, professor of animal uh, science at uh, Colorado State University, nationally known autism expert, author of uh, Thinking in Pictures, among other books. She's been featured in uh, in many films and uh, documentaries, and she'll be participating in a panel discussion at the screener after the screening of Invisible Disabilities, the Problems of Perception. That is Thursday, November 30th in the evening, Salt Lake City Library. Uh, Professor Grandin, welcome to the program. It's great to be here. Uh, so this uh, this idea of invisible disabilities, these are disabilities that perhaps uh, aren't immediately uh, obvious to the people around uh, the people they're dealing with, and that can cause problems, as I understand it, that people make judgments uh, based on that. Well, the problem is is that, um, you know, if somebody's in a wheelchair, obviously you see there's physical disability there. But the problem that you've got with something like, you know, a lot of is the person's socially awkward and and you can't see that they have a problem. One of the things I had to learn is I had to learn how to do everything like acting in a play. You know, I was brought up in the 50s where kids were taught manners. Kids were taught how to say please and thank you. Um, I'm appalled at the amount of, um, you know, young people on the spectrum I see today where, you know, they kind of are overprotected and they haven't learned how to just go in the store and shop themselves and talk to the check stand person and talk to the clerks in the store. Um, because it, you know, they feel socially awkward. So I had to learn a lot of these social things, sort of like, like if I was an actor in a play. Hmm. And I, I think going to your website, you have a website on, uh, on autism. Uh, you say you, you had to deal with feeling overwhelmed. You call it uh, uh, overloads. You felt overloaded. Well, the problem in sensory hmm. is there's problems in the sensory systems, and they're very, very variable. Some people have sound sensitivity. Some people have problems with fluorescent lights, where it flashes on and off like a disc attack. Uh, it's it's um, 
very variable. Some people have a touch sensitivity, and you get in a place where there's just too much sensory information, you know, something that might be just kind of fun, you know, like a sports bar with a pile of TVs going on all at once to somebody on the spectrum, or maybe just somebody with sensory processing disorder feels like they're inside the speaker at the rock concert and everybody's pounding on it. Hmm. You said you, you could only hear hard consonants? No, no, no. That's wrong. Okay. I could not hear. Oh, you could not I hear card. Okay. Uh huh. In other words, if you have auditory processing disorder, it lets people speak slowly. The hard consonants are not heard. Hmm. You know, it's just the opposite. Like if I heard the word cat, I might hear ah, and not hear the C or the T. And this is something that's not limited just to autism. You can have a lot of children that just have a little bit of language problems. And if you just slow down and talk more slowly, it will make them easier uh, to hear those hard consonants. You know, it's like the processing speed of the brain is slowed down. It's like a computer that's really slow. Hmm. And so you, you would sit uh, toward the front? Yes, I always sat in the front because I sat in the back. I had a harder time hearing. Hmm. And when I was a young child, if people spoke to me slowly, I understood everything they said. But if the grown-ups got yakking really fast... It kind of went into a gibberish. I used to call it grown-up talk. Mm-hmm. So you, I mean, you had problems that maybe your, you know, the next child over didn't have. You you were coping with this, trying to learn with it. Uh, I wonder, did you have problems with the other children interacting with you? Did you deal with bullying, for example? Oh, when I was in high school, I had a terrible time with bullying and teasing. Absolutely terrible time. Mm-hmm. Elementary school wasn't too bad because I was good at making things, very good at art, and I got recognition for that. And my ability in art was always encouraged. You've got to take the thing the kid's good at, always build on it and encourage it. And what high school was horrible. And the only place where I was away from the teasing was a specialized interest. Horseback riding, model rocket club, and electronics. And the students that were interested in those specialized things were not doing the teasing. So I want to really get kids into social groups where they'd have a shared interest. It could be robotics club, it could be chess club, uh, school newspaper, the school band, uh, creative writing club, uh, just all kinds of things like that, 4-H, FFA. uh, Those are great activities. Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, other just fantastic activities. And and so that they get in with kids that have the shared interest. Hmm. And so that that was your way to to overcome that? Oh, I would have just been terrible. I would have just fallen apart otherwise. Everywhere else I was teased. Those are the only places I was not teased. Now, today, with texting and all that stuff, I would have been out riding my horse and I would have been texted. Yeah, that's At least I didn't true. have to deal with that back in the 60s. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you said you, did, you've, you've dealt, you dealt with panic attacks, and you, you constructed a squeeze machine? Yeah. Well, I, as I hit puberty, I started having nonstop panic attacks. You know, people say, well, what's that like? Well, when I do conferences, I say, imagine we lock the doors of this room, we turn off the light, and I'm going to bring in about 100 the most poisonous snakes in the world, and we're going to dump them loose in this room. Mm. And you're in here in the dark, so you can't see where they're at. Now imagine how you would feel. Mm. That's the way I used to feel all the time. And mm. and as I went through my 20s, it got worse. And using a squeezing machine would help calm it down. But then I finally had to go on antidepressant medication. And in my book, Thinking in Pictures, I talk about um, uh, uh, you know, how the antidepressant medication stopped the panic attacks, and there's a chapter in there called A Believer in Biochemistry. It was like magic. And the other thing that happened when I went on the antidepressants is it was I got rid of all the colitis problems I had, and the headaches went away, 
because my nervous system was in a constant state of stress. And brain scan research that was done at the University of Utah with Jason Cooperwriter, a graduate student there, he found that my amygdala was four, three or four times bigger than normal, and the amygdala is the brain's fear center. What do you advise uh, parents, children with, with autism and, and Asperger's on the autism spectrum? Uh, how do you advise them to, to well, the get them out into the done, world? The problem with autism is it's such a big spectrum. At one end of the spectrum, you've got somebody that's nonverbal, is going to have to live in a supervised living situation. And at the other end of the spectrum, you've got Steve Jobs, you've got Einstein, Mozart, and a whole lot of other, and half the uh, people out in Silicon Valley that make it even possible for a radio station to even have an interview because the social people wouldn't have even invented radio equipment. So it's a very big spectrum. So I, it's hard for me to answer that in a, in a generality. Basically, with a little three-year-olds, we've got to do lots of early intervention, tons of early intervention, 20 or 30 hours a week with a grown-up, um, uh, teaching them stuff, nursery rhymes, uh, playing games with them, maybe some ABA. Um, Turn-taking's got to be taught. But when the kids get past the little tiny kids stage, then things really diverge. And so you might have, a, um, you know, what you're going to work with them. But I'm, uh, one thing I'm going to say, build on strengths. They've got to build on strengths. You've got to build up strengths. They can turn into jobs, turn into hobbies if they're not going to be able to hold a job. And I'm seeing too many people getting labeled uh, on mild autism or Asperger's that are sitting on Social Security playing video games because they were never taught any work skills. We've got to teach work skills to middle school kids. When I was 13, I had a little sewing job. When I was 15, I cleaned horse stalls. You know, this taught, you know, valuable work skills. You've got to be on time. You've got to do the job. And, uh, and the people will live up to those expectations. Well, yes, because I can think of all the kind of quirky, nerdy kids I went to school with that would get an Asperger's label today, and they all got employed. Mm-hmm. You know, they, 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 uh, you know, there was, a, there was an advantage to an old-fashioned 50s upbringing because kids were systematically taught how to set the table, how to have table manners, how to say please and thank you. Thank you. That was just systematically taught to kids. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting uh, quote I'm reading on a website for Invisible Disabilities, invisibledisabilities.org. Uh, this is what uh, Joni Erickson um, Tata says. Um, she says... People have such high expectations of folks like you, that is, with invisible disabilities, like, come on, get your act together. But they have such low expectations of folks like me in wheelchairs. I guess it is, is, is perceptions. Well, the thing is, you can be in a wheelchair, and that has nothing to do with your brain. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see, there, they, see what, what becomes a problem is that people um, become the label. I'm seeing too much of that. And I'm also seeing where uh, parents don't know where to push. Okay, I'm not going to, if you're in a wheelchair, I'm not going to suggest you go out and play football. That'd be ridiculous. But there's lots of other things you can do in a wheelchair. There's nothing wrong with your brain. And we, there's plenty of things you can do. And we're going to do them. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to see where the ability is. Mm-hmm. No, you cannot play football. But um, uh, where, where could you have the ability? I think we've got to do a lot more looking at that. And that and then t- make accommodations. Obviously, mm-hmm. you have to have a ramp. You can't go upstairs in a wheelchair. There's some accommodations or an elevator. There's some accommodations you have to have. But, uh, and that would be hard for you to, like, go out in the woods and wheel around. That would be difficult. See, I'm visualizing things where, where a wheelchair would really be a problem. Mm-hmm. But it's not going to be a problem at a radio station. 
Mm-hmm. As long as it's got an elevator and it's got ramps. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. And an accessible bathroom. You have to have that. Yeah. Then if you have that, you can do just about any brain job because your brain's okay. Mm-hmm. What about people with invisible disabilities, you know, people where maybe the brain is affected? Well, I... you, have, you have the same problem with head injuries. In fact, mm-hmm. you get some of the, if you get a frontal cortex head injury, like in a car accident, you actually get a lot of autistic traits because that bashes up the frontal cortex. And I can remember my teacher explaining to the other children that, um, you know, that I had a problem that you couldn't see. Now, back in the 50s, a lot of kids had polio, so there were a lot of leg braces around. And the teacher explained to the other children <coughs> that, you know, you can see a leg brace and you can see that the child has a disability, where the kind of problem I had, you couldn't see it, but I had a problem, and they needed to help me and not be teasing me. And then elementary school actually went pretty good. Um, high school was horrible. Mm-hmm. On your website, this, this quote struck me. I don't know if this is from you or or not. Um, quote is, autism diagnosis, and talking about the time when you were diagnosed, autism diagnosis was a virtual death sentence to achievement or productivity in life. Well, you see, when, it, when autism first came out, um, they, you know, they didn't have the Asperger's diagnosis for the more mild type. And the other thing is people just, you know, they assume the label. I'm kind of horrified at just how much people are locked into the label because I'm seeing a lot of young, smart kids that have got various labels. It could be dyslexia, it could be autism, ADHD, or one of the really bad labels like conduct disorder, oppositional defiant. And I don't think those should be medical diagnoses. In fact, they're not. They're, they're, uh, they used to call those juvenile delinquents. And we need to be working with the kids so that they don't get that way. Um, you know, the whole problem with the diagnostic system is it's only half based in science, and the other half is based in insurance codes and access to services and politics within the psychiatric, you know, community that that makes the, up the labels. And I'm seeing too many kids becoming the label because when I think back when I was a child, all the quirky, nerdy kids, and then I I go out in the meatpacking plants. And I see people out there that are dyslexic in good jobs. I was at a meeting the other day. I met a dyslexic insurance salesman, a very successful one. Um, you know, where are, where are the older people that have some of these milder labels? Well, they're out there employed. And they, and they had to find something where they could use what they were good at. Like ADHD kids, they're good at talking. They're good at, probably good in sales because they're good talkers. Mm-hmm. You're, and you're saying, I wanted to follow up with what you said earlier, you, you want to find the ability. Exactly. But that, that can be, that takes some work, doesn't it, on parts of friends, Not family, you know? Work on, mm-hmm. Let's go back to elementary school. My ability in art showed up in about really strongly in third grade, and I was given art materials. I was encouraged to do art of lots of different things and not always just do art about the same things all the time. So you, yeah. your, your teacher recognized that and encouraged it? My mother recognized it, no, Your mother, too. okay. Mm-hmm. But everybody encouraged my ability in art. Or you yeah. might have another little kid that's really good at math. Well, don't bore him doing baby drills. If he can do the high school math book in the third grade, then let him do the high school math book in the third grade. Mm-hmm. It's not that hard to tell. Yeah. If the kids are given opportunities to do things, one thing I think is really bad in a lot of school systems, and I don't know how Utah is, they've taken out all the hands-on classes, cooking, sewing, woodworking, welding, all of these things, things that also can turn into really great careers, too. 
Uh, I wonder, there was a question, there's some interesting questions and answers on your on your website. This one really struck me. Uh, someone asked you, uh, growing up, did you have dreams? Did you, oh, yeah, what, what did you think you could very, reach very, for? Very, well, okay, okay, I thought you meant dreams, you know, sleeping, yes. <laughs> well, I always kind of wanted to be a scientist. My grandfather was the co-inventor of the automatic pilot for airplanes. He's an MIT-trained engineer. And we go to visit my grandfather. And I'd ask him all these questions. Why is the sky blue? Why is grass green? And he would patiently explain it to me. And so I always wanted, you know, I was very interested in, like, becoming a scientist. That was something that I was real interested in. Uh, did um, did the problems you were having with, you know, autism, I guess up, up until you were diagnosed, you didn't know what, the, what it was. But did, did that alter your perceptions of what, did you always think you could achieve that dream? Yeah, I did. And the thing that I'm, Seeing, I'm seeing too many kids kind of getting a handicap mentality where they're becoming their label. You know, they'll walk up to me and all they want to do is talk about their autism. Now, autism is a really important part of who I am, but I'm a college professor first, and I'm seeing kids where they're sort of becoming their label, where autism is the only thing they think about in life is autism and nothing else. And I don't think that's good. Like I'm an older person and I have sciatic nerve pain, you know, going down my leg. Well, I don't walk up to people and say, well, I'm a sciatic, hmm. and I want to tell you about my sciatica and all the great exercises I found on YouTube. Yes, I do tell people about them, and I've demonstrated them to people, but that certainly doesn't define who I am. Why do you think these kids are becoming their labels? Well, I think there's not enough emphasis on building up their special skills, because I notice when I go out to Silicon Valley, I'll see people all over the place that I know are on the spectrum, and boy, those parents avoid the labels. Now, well, the reason why, in a lot of cases, you've got to get labels because you can't get services without the labels. These labels are also insurance codes. Hmm. What resources are out there that you would suggest for, you know, a parent or, or someone with? An... The first thing, if you have a newly diagnosed child, the first thing I'd recommend is joining a local support group so you can, you know, find out what's going on from other parents. That would be absolutely the first thing they ought to do. And then, of course, I recommend my books. And my most basic book is The Way I See It. That's my most basic book about autism. And if you were just going to buy one book, especially if they have a young child, I'd recommend that book. Hmm. And then the second book I'd recommend would be Thinking in Pictures. And much more information at the, the website, templegrandon.com. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of information at the website. And if you're interested in cattle, which is my true interest, uh, Grandon.com is my last name. I got lots and lots of cattle information. Mm -hmm. If you really want to see what I designed for the industry, I got this cool video up on YouTube. It's called Beef Plant Video Tour with Temple Grandon. You can just type in Temple Grandon Beef Plant Video Tour into YouTube, and you'll find it, and you'll see all the things I've done for uh, see the plant systems that I've designed, and half the cattle in the U.S. are handled in the systems that are shown on that YouTube video. Yeah, I think that's pretty good for a kid they thought was going to be mentally retarded. That is. That, that is. Very interesting research, by the way, and wish we had time to talk about that as well. Uh, Temple Grandin, of course, nationally known autism expert, nationally known uh, uh, expert on uh, animal behavior as well. Professor of Animal Science at uh, Colorado State University, author of Thinking in Pictures and many other books. She'll be part of a panel discussion after the screening of the uh, new documentary, Invisible Disabilities, The Problems of Perception. That is Thursday evening at the Salt Lake City Library. Temple Grandin, thanks so much. Well, thank you so much for having me.
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. That's my recent conversation with uh, Temple Grant. And as I mentioned, she'll be part of that panel discussion. She's also coming to Utah for a Utah Autism and Asperger's Syndrome conference from Future Horizons. That'll be uh, on November 30th. And uh, that's uh, coming up uh, in Provo. And uh, she'll be giving speech. I think hers is about 3 o'clock in the uh, afternoon. Also on November 30th in the evening uh, at uh, 7 o'clock in the evening, Salt Lake City Library screening of invisible disabilities, the problems of perception. We'll be talking with uh, Betsy Burton, owner of King's English Bookshop, whose son, Nick Burton, is uh, one of the men profiled in the documentary. We'll talk with filmmaker Jenny McKenzie as well on invisible disabilities following a brief break. House plants make a wonderful addition to the indoor decor of our homes. But those with young children and pets may be concerned about the safety of these green beauties. Hi, I'm Melinda Myers, horticulturist and gardening expert. Fortunately, there are many non-toxic houseplants to choose from. Popular flowering plants like African violet and Christmas cactus are non-toxic. Even though the poinsettia can cause irritation, it's not poisonous. Baby tears, prayer plant, spider plant, snake plant, and coleus are also safe. Visit the ASPCA website or talk to your pediatrician for a more complete list of safe plants. Reduce problems and calm your fears by keeping all plants out of the reach of children and pets as much as possible. Know the names of your plants so if one is ingested and you're concerned about poisoning, you have the needed information for the doctor or vet. Check out our website for this and other gardening tips. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about invisible disabilities. Those are disabilities which at first glance may not be readily apparent. Include intellectual uh, impairments, learning differences, cognitive dysfunctions, uh, mental disorders, uh, also autism. And it can cause some safety issues. Police don't know what they're dealing with sometimes. Uh, That's one of the issues talked about in a new documentary uh, called Invisible Disabilities, The Problems of Perception. I'll have a screening on November 30th, Salt Lake City Library, 7 o'clock in the evening. Then there will be a panel discussion following, which will include Temple Grandin, a uh, nationally known uh, animal behavior expert and uh, autism expert. Uh, she'll be a part of that uh, panel discussion. Chris Burbank, Salt Lake City Police Chief. William McMahon, Chair of the University of Utah Department of Psychiatry. And uh, the moderator will be uh, one of our guests uh, in this half of the program, Betsy Burton from King's English Bookshop, whose son, Nick Burton, is one of the men profiled in the documentary. Jenny McKenzie, the filmmaker, is also uh, with us uh, on the line, and we welcome in uh, Betsy Burton and Jenny McKenzie. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks Let, for having us, Tom. Let's uh, hear a, a clip from the uh, documentary uh, coming up next. Uh, this, I think, is uh, number two, and... Uh, I think this is is you, Betsy Burton, uh, talking. Let's uh, let's hear this. Everybody just loves him. He's very brave. He's very determined, and he's also just a bundle of joy. Hmm. Gotta do it. Gotta do. He's bright, witty, compassionate. But beyond that, he's empathetic. He connects with people. Oh, thank you, sir. Cheers. Because Nix is handsome and quite able and likable, when you first see him, you don't know. 
and it is that gap that that instant between when he's when he's seen as normal and when he's seen as not normal that's where the danger can come in that really struck me that gap in perception between uh, somebody uh, views, uh, I guess, your son as, as normal and then views him as, as not normal. Right. Uh, that can bring up some safety issues. We'll talk about that as well. But uh, I wonder if you first just, just tell us about your, your son. Well, my son um, is 28 years old now. He was born, he had a prenatal stroke. So, you know, at first we thought that, well, the doctors thought that there wasn't a whole lot of hope for him to have any sort of life, but he had lots of... of um, therapies of one kind and another, speech and small motor and, and gross motor therapy. And gradually, you know, as Temple said, he built he built on his strengths. And now he plays basketball and he delivers food for the food bank with, of course, help. He can't drive a car, but um, he's fully engaged in life and seems quite normal. But he is a stroke victim and he has brain damage so he has cognitive impairment and he has a bad seizure problem so you know part of what i think is so wonderful about him aside from the empathy that was talked about is his his just um willful willful persistence and his joy he really takes part in life despite all these problems and has a great time Hmm. that and uh, maybe you could follow up a little bit with that 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 inst- you talk about that gap, that instant, right? When people uh, their perception changes, and mm-hmm. I, I suppose that that's needed because you want him to be safe. But is there an emotional component to that as well for you? No, I think what I want is for him to be recognized as who he is. He's not ashamed of his dis- disabilities. I mean, they are cognitive disabilities, but he's not. He knows how to live with them. He knows who he is. He's a wonderful human being. And there's nothing wrong with people recognizing who he is. What's wrong in our society is exactly what Temple was talking about, the labels. People, once they label somebody, then they make assumptions, and those assumptions just aren't correct. Mm. So many people with disabilities lead fully engaged lives and contribute immeasurably to the community. And I think that's a very important thing for people to begin to recognize. And I think it's important, as she said, for people with disabilities to recognize a, to accept who they are, but B, not to accept that as a, some sort of an awful limitation, but to do to be everything they can be. We're talking with uh, Betsy Burton uh, with King's English Bookshop. You know her from there. Uh, she also has a son, Nick Burton, who has an invisible disability, and he's profiled in this new documentary, Invisible Disabilities, Problems of Perception. We have with us uh, the filmmaker, Jenny McKenzie, and we're now joined by William McMahon, chair of the University of Utah Department of Psychiatry. Uh, Dr. McMahon, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Let me turn next to Jenny McKenzie. Uh, this, uh, the Problems of Perception is the subtitle of the film. Uh, is that what, what drew you in? This invisible disabilities are a little harder to deal with, I guess. They are. They are. And Betsy and other parents are certainly the ones who have lived their experience. And I think my job as a storyteller and as a filmmaker was to really bring those stories to the screen in an entertaining way that also really showed the truth and I think the incredible compassion that these families have for their children and really what can happen when things are misperceived, particularly behaviors with some of these adults who have transitioned into our communities. And what can happen are really things that can be very dangerous 
and very tragic. So I think it's a film that's an educational film and an advocacy film that will hopefully allow people in our neighborhoods and in our communities to really better understand our special needs population and not to judge so quickly, but to really slow down and assess and learn as much as they can. If you just joined us, we're talking about Invisible Disabilities. It's the title of a new documentary film about those living with disabilities who are not, uh, whose disabilities are not immediately uh, apparent to those around them. It could cause safety problems and uh, also expectation labeling problems. Uh, we're talking with uh, Betsy Burton, whose son, Nick Burton, is uh, one of the men profiled in the documentary. Jenny McKenzie is uh, the filmmaker, and uh, William McMahon is chair of the University of Utah Department of Psychiatry. If you uh, have a question or comment or an experience, perhaps you have a relative uh, in this uh, category and uh, you'd like to contribute to the discussion, we'd love to have your input at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can email us at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, Dr. McMahon, I'd, I'd love to give get your reaction to a couple of things that Temple Grandin uh, said uh, earlier in the program. Uh, she talked about labeling. Uh, labeling from those outside that could be part of the perception, self-labeling. Uh, and, of course, uh, you you have to, uh, in order to get some services, sometimes you have to get a diagnosis and a label. She uh, talked about uh, maybe there too much labeling going on, and including um, she saw some insidious self-labeling and people defining themselves by their disability. That's that's true. Um Temple has become a great spokesperson for individuals with with autism, and uh, among uh, the community concerned with autism, she she's pointed out not only the the limitations that uh, the public or schools or employers might might place where they're inappropriate, but also the individual with autism themselves. Uh, has to has to walk a tightrope of, uh, on the one hand, uh, accepting uh, the accommodations or limitations they might have themselves. On the other hand, pushing their potential so that they can participate uh, in society uh, in so many different ways. So Temple's able to do that. And for individuals with other disabilities, uh, such as Tourette syndrome or bipolar disorder or ADHD, uh, it's a similar kind of balancing act of accepting the shorthand description of uh, what is a medical diagnosis, but also allowing for the human potential to, to develop life and humanity that's not defined by a medical diagnosis. Uh, Betsy Burton, I'm sure these are issues you've thought about. You you want your son Nick's to have the fullest life possible. How do you right. go about exploring the the possibilities there? Well, part of it is allowing them to follow their own lead. You know, I think the best parents really do respect their children for who they are. And so, growing up, we allowed him to really pursue the things that he loved and excelled at. He loved, for instance, basketball. But more than anything, he just loves socializing with people. And so now, um, following those cues, he delivers food at the food bank and also packs it. Well, the packing is a job, you know. 
he enjoys the people that he does it with, and it's okay, but he loves delivering food, and he also delivers books for the King's English. He loves that interaction. He feels like he's taking people presents, and um, he excels in social interaction. It's, you know, when when Temple used the, the metaphor of the wheelchair, and, and the things you can do in a wheelchair. Nix has cognitive disabilities, so the, there are many jobs that aren't open to him, but, he, but his, his ability to excel in relationships with people makes him very good at these sorts of things. And I, I really believe that everybody, what it, you know, everybody has disabilities, and I think they, everybody has strengths, and I think finding those strengths and building on them exactly as Temple said is the, gives these people the best shot at a good life. Jenny McKenzie, there's another gentleman profiled along with Nick's. Uh, I think his name is Joey. Yes, Joey is Nick's cousin, who actually is a little older than Nick's and lives with Nick's, and he has autism. And then we also have an adult woman who's profiled who has a different kind of disability than Nick's or Joey, Stacy, and she's also profiled in the film. We really, when you're making a film, you want to make sure to cast the characters so they represent as widely as possible different kinds of disabilities and situations so that people can learn and grow from their situations. How did you go about casting, as you say, go about finding people with, with invisible disabilities? Well, the really the special needs community is such a tight one and such a unique one. So once we started weaving and connecting to that network, people were really amazing. And the Columbus Community Center that's located in Salt Lake locally was incredibly instrumental with helping us to find different adults who were living at, you know, sort of different places in terms of their autonomy and independence. And we actually began interviewing different people. And when we met Stacy, who's the other character in the film, she was completely hilarious. We met her while she was on her job working at the Columbus Community Center. And we went up and talked with her while she was working in her job. And I watched her in action. And then she said to me, I said, now, Stacy, would you be okay participating in a documentary film? And we would have a camera and a crew, and we would be around you for a few days and really be immersed in your life. And she said, well, yes, Jenny, I would be happy to because the camera loves me, and I love cameras. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Sounds like Stacy. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, Dr. McMahon, I, I wonder, the, the subtitle of the film is Problems of Perception. And I'm wondering... Uh, Maybe you could uh, talk a little bit about that in in terms of how people interact with people with invisible disabilities. We talked earlier about yes. you know if you see someone in a wheelchair, you know immediately that they're you know there's something that uh, you're going to interact with them them on and and you know good or bad. But invisible disabilities it, it takes you a while to to learn a little bit more about the person. That's true, and and often it occurs in a the the encounters occur in settings where. Uh, the normal thing to do would be to make a very quick judgment, uh, and any any behavior that is out of the ordinary uh, or hard to understand uh, is interpreted as a threat. And uh, so, the the ability uh, we all need to cultivate is to recognize that um, that we don't have to be immediately reactive uh, when we're uncomfortable. We can take a deep breath, 
make a few observations, try to engage in a way that's kind and and fair, uh, and perhaps we'll learn more. Uh, the other person will engage with us in a way that we come to an understanding where otherwise there would be unnecessary conflict. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I guess, and I would, yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, well, I would just add to that that in the situation that, that really was the genesis for the film, um, a law enforcement officer made um, – a mistake. And it was, it, A, I think he was ill-informed because there just are no training programs for people in law enforcement about people with disabilities per se, never mind these more less obvious disabilities. And B, um, they are a population um, that are easily taken advantage of. So uh, this Nick's and his cousin were were um, in a bathroom, and his cousin simply used a urinal by dropping his trousers because that's easier, you know, just in a in the sense of fine motor. And a police officer made made a mistake in judging that behavior, and that's what gave rise to the whole problem. And what surfaced for all of us, including Chief Burbank, was the fact that there is no training, and so. Having law enforcement officers, probation officers, teachers, all of these people who work with the special needs population recognize the hallmarks and appropriate responses for different disabilities is just a very important thing. And I think that really is the thing that the need that's emerged from that incident and and that's coming out in, in the film and the training manual and you know that goes with it. I guess the stakes are very, very high at, at that point. It's it's a matter of safety. Absolutely. And it could could actually, you know, in a in a situation where a police officer perceives a deadly threat, it could be deadly for the person. Absolutely. If, for instance, Joey, who, you know, in sensory overload, is waving his arms about, or Nick starts to have a seizure and his arm goes up, it's very easy to see how that could be misinterpreted in a threatening way. Doctor McMahon, I don't know if you've uh, run into this with people that you work with. Yes. Uh, so um, my career has been involved in several uh, invisible disabilities, uh, one of which is Tourette syndrome, where uh, often individuals with Tourette have uh, very uh, uh, abrupt movements called tics, and sometimes they utter words uh, that are out of context, uh, particularly can be offensive words. Um, and we've over the years had a training program sponsored both by the Tourette Cinema uh, Association, uh, the national group, but also here locally. I would have to say Chief Burbank has been really an exemplary uh, advocate for better management of, uh, of public issues. And this is a great example of a partnership between a parent, a storyteller, and the police chief. Mm. Uh, I agree. Yeah, uh, Jen- it's been wonderful, mm, and so is Jenny McKenzie. <laughs> I was going to ask Jenny McKenzie. You've, uh, do you, I think, you interviewed Chief Burbank for the for the film. Oh, we did interview him, and he knocked it out of the ballpark. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, going into the interview, you really we had some trepidation because it was a challenging situation that happened with Nix and Joey at the park. And I think for me, I wasn't sure 
how much he was wanting to disclose and what direction he would want to go. And he really, I think, is one of the real heroes in this story because he not only took responsibility for a situation that was inappropriate and wrong, but he took this challenging situation and said, we want to create a film that is going to educate, that is going to help people learn and grow, and that is going to stop these kinds of situations from happening again. So he really looked at it with national eyes, and I think he wants to see this kind of misperception, any sort of use of force decreased on a national level so that we can help law enforcement to learn about the various disabilities that are a part of all of our communities. We are talking about invisible disabilities, obviously. We're talking about a new documentary film, Invisible Disabilities, The Problems of Perception. And uh, with us, uh, the filmmaker Jenny McKenzie, also Betsy Burton from King's English Bookshop, whose uh, son Nick Burton is one of the men profiled in the documentary, and William McMahon, chair of the University of Utah Department of Psychiatry. If you have uh, a question or comment, we certainly welcome you in at 1-800-826-1495, or you can email us at upraxcess at gmail.com. Betsy Burton, uh, this is a very frightening incident for for your son and and his cousin. Uh, This is a very tense situation for police as well. Uh, What would you suggest uh, this, this kind of training entails? Well, I think the first thing is police understanding of the tragedy in their own lives, that they do make a mistake and how important that is. And that's one of the things I'm I'm hoping this film does. But the, the training itself, I do think they all need to learn more about disabilities. So because police, of all the people... The, all the populations that deal with people with special needs, police have to make the, the quickest judgments. And their safety and the safety of others rests in their ability to do that. So they really need this knowledge desperately so that if, for instance, um, someone is autistic and they see these movements, they immediately know that sensory um, depri- or, or sensory overload and not a threatening gesture. They, they just need to recognize the hallmarks of each, and there are many there are many um, sorts of disabilities, but learning the hallmarks isn't that hard. And we have developed this training. We've, de- we've written a very substantial manual that goes with the film and also are just in the process of finishing a PowerPoint so that this, these three pieces together form a wonderful training that law enforcement can use, that parole officers can use. And it's already being used in in universities, actually. Um, It's being used at the Mayo Clinic and the Neurology Department, for example. So um, across the board, these these sorts of trainings are very useful, but I think they're most useful in law enforcement in terms of safety. Let's hear another uh, cut from the film. Uh, This talks about uh, integrating into society uh, and uh, being able to reach full potential. We have a very good routine because both boys need routine. Every night they do something different. They have a very full life. One night they go out to dinner, the other nights they eat their dinner at home, they help clear up and do the dishes. They go to the library where Nick likes to get CDs because he loves music and Joey loves books. They do Special Olympics together, they also go bowling. And one night they stay home and do the laundry. They have to do their laundry. All people need to do useful work. I mean, people want to 
contribute. Integrating people with disabilities into the community, having them go to the movies, go out to eat, working jobs, all it does is enhance everybody's experience. It's a win-win for everybody. To be able to get up every day, get ready, get dressed, go out, go to a job, work hard, feel good about your job, receive a paycheck is a real part of being a member of society and, and, and feeling like they're part of the same system that you and I are part of. We need to be figuring out how everybody in the community can contribute. Work is pretty easy, it's pretty cool. Sounds like some success there. Uh, Dr. McMahon, uh, how if, if our listeners have someone uh, in their lives with an invisible disability, you obviously want them to reach their full potential. How, how best to go about it? Well, parenting uh, is a challenge for everyone. And uh, parents of children with, with disabilities um, have to do what Betsy Burton has done, which is uh, to try to understand the nature of the medical limitations and how that affects life, but to to also be open to what's undefined about the person's indi- individual uh, potential. That uh, with within each of us, uh, we have the capacity to surprise a society and and ourselves by just uh, proceeding one step at a time towards integration into school, into community, into work life. So. We're now doing a study uh, of adult outcome and autism kids that we saw when they were uh, young uh, back in the 1980s. They're now approaching middle age. And we have some amazing success success stories. Um, And every story is somewhat different, but the common theme is uh, not giving up, of uh, being flexible about trying one thing then another, uh, and of uh, seeking to to network with both advocacy groups uh, and with the public at large. So I th- I think um, a parent uh, is the the child's best advocate. And in the case, for example, of Betsy Burton, uh, we see her- heroism in just being a parent and accepting your child and helping your child make uh, the most of their potential. We are just have 30 seconds left. Betsy Burton, you mentioned some materials have been developed. Uh, where best to, to go and find some of those materials? Well, they will all be, um, of course, at the film. And Ginny has a website, and they're available there. And we also have them at the King's English, so that you can get them in a number of places. I did want to mention one other piece of material that I would recommend to everyone. This is my bookseller side coming out. Sorry, but there is a book called Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon that talks about parenting and accepting your children for, for who they are, no matter what their differences, that I just think is the most important book that's been written that's out this year. Far From the Tree. Okay, Far great. Tree. Uh, and uh, JennyMcKenzieFilms.com is the place to go for, for Jenny McKenzie's materials. Uh, Jenny McKenzie, the filmmaker, uh, William McMahon, chair of the uh, University of Utah Department of Psychiatry, and Betsy Burton from King's English Bookshop have been our guests. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. And uh, for uh, producer Shalane Smith-Needham, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Justin Hicken. 
And I'm Mary Jackson, and we are from Utah State University. It's that time of year again. The leaves have fallen from the trees, the snowy holidays are on their way, and love is in the air for one of Utah's vital wildlife species. Otocoileus hemionus, commonly known as mule deer, are the smallest members of the cervid family in Utah, after moose and elk. Their name is derived from their large ears, which resemble those of a mule. Mule deer have a coat that ranges from dark gray to a lighter tan color, a white rump patch, and a tail with a black tip. In the months of November and December, mule deer are active in their breeding season, known as the rut. During the summer and early fall, males will typically live away from those and fawns and begin to play fight with other males to establish a hierarchy of dominance. Once the rut begins, males will seek out does and become more aggressive and compete with one another for females to breed with. The less dominant males are usually aware of their status and will be chased away by larger bucks. However, males that are similar in size will posture to one another, lock antlers, and fight to establish breeding rights with the doe. Mule deer are not monogamous in nature. Males will breed with any female that will accept them. Does can also breed with multiple bucks, providing the possibility of multiple births from different fathers. The receptive period for does is known as estrus and typically lasts for less than a day and sometimes only for a few hours. If the first estrus cycle is missed, does can go through another cycle in about four weeks. When the rut comes to an end, bucks will return to being solitary until they shed their antlers in late winter. In Utah, does typically give birth in June and will leave the herd to be alone. The older does commonly have twins, while younger does have only one fawn. After the fawns are born, the cycle of life starts again. Wild About Utah is a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts, celebrating 20 years this season with the musical touring production of Miracle on 34th Street with the music of Meredith Wilson tomorrow at uh, Wednesday at 7.30. Information is at ellenmeckelstheater.org. KUSRHD1 Logan, KUSKHD1 Vernal, KUSLHD1 Richfield, KUSTHD1 Moab, KUSUFMHD1 Logan.